Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to Out to Lunch with me, Jay Rayner. If you're new here, here's the deal. I invite a distinguished guest for a bite to eat, either in a top-class restaurant or due to the times we've been living through via a delivery to their home, wherever that may be in the world. Whilst we sit in awe as beautiful dishes arrive or open food delivery boxes like there are Christmas presents, my dining companions give me the lowdown. I've said it before and I'll say it again, great food oils great conversation. Even the non-fatty food does that. In season four, I've brought you the likes of Jay May on rescuing a pub, Sarah Pascoe on the sex industry, and David Lammy MP on being friends with Obama. And internationally, I was joined by Minnie Driver on why mistakes are important, Lance Reddick on gun training for John Wick, and Tim Minchin on wanting people to imagine him in the nude. I know, I know, you'll just have to listen to that one. Now, think how long a good lunch takes to eat. I'm talking three courses at least, chat and the service, even if it is of the self variety. It's way more than the length of these podcasts, so there is a fair amount of natural wastage in the audio department. But fear not, we hate waste in any shape or form, and so we present to you some of the good bits that didn't make the cut the first time round. It's fine, you can thank me later. Welcome to Out to Lunch an extra serving. A lot of people have told me that they love listening to this podcast because as much as the chat, they also like listening to the background sounds, the noises from restaurants, the chatter, the clink of cutlery on plates, sometimes just the unboxing of takeaway boxes. I, I do understand. One of the guests, Dolly Alderton, she said the chatter of service, well, it kept her company when she was in lockdown alone for three months. She played our episodes on repeat. It gave her a sense of the world still being out there. Now, today, to to accompany this episode of Extra Bits. I haven't ordered a swanky takeaway because eating that by myself while talking into a microphone would, well, that'd be a bit sad, wouldn't it? But I have made one of my favourite, favourite lunches. Stay tuned to hear what that is. Um, I've got it right here. Um, oh, I tell you, it looks delicious. But the first delight I want to bring to you is the aforementioned author, journalist and broadcaster, the wonderful Dolly Alderton. We had so many things in common. Agony aunts. Dolly is the resident agony aunt of the Sunday Times and my mother was one. A love of jazz, journalism... And as it turns out, we both grew up in the London borough of Harrow, a place that holds particularly fond memories for Dolly... And here's why. I grew up in Stanmore and I used to visit Harrow on the Hill quite a lot. Can you imagine why, Jay? Why did you visit Harrow on the Hill? Please tell me not because of the boys. I'm afraid so. Oh, Jesus, really? The, the, the Harrow boys? When you go to an all-girls school where you don't have neighbouring boys' school, trying to find these, like, avenues to boys becomes, like, almost an extreme sport. Like, it's the thing that you're so obsessed with. So if a girl would go on a holiday camp or she'd go to a hotel on a package deal with her parents where there are lots of other families there and kids. Everyone would come back with these sort of, I've got a way in, I found a boy. Or like if someone had an older brother, some sort of link was established between our school and Harrow School. And then we all found a way 
into the school. So we all kind of would talk to these boys on MSN Messenger, who we, and we'd never meet them. And then we'd do these kind of mass trips up to the hill on a Saturday. And I remember my friend said it was literally like, you know, when they So out say, the back of Harold Mahill Station, up yeah. the slope, turn up Roxborough Park, through the graveyard near there. Exactly. And my friend said to me, it's literally like... You know, when they would send out, like, Marilyn Monroe to the troops? We'd, like, all get dressed up. And then we'd all go up there, have some fags around the bike sheds with them, have a clumsy snog, and then go back and feel like we'd done something quite philanthropic, I think. (laughs) And do go back and listen to how Dolly is a self-proclaimed shiksa, but always, always wanted to be Jewish. Still does. She's brilliant. Next up, the Labour MP for Tottenham, Shadow Lord Chancellor, Shadow Secretary of State for Justice. That's David Lammy. He was an excellent dining companion, even if he is on the keto diet. And somehow, I facilitated David getting, shall we say, emotional multiple times during our chat. He's known for being a passionate speaker, and clearly the addition of food and the ensuing chat must have opened the floodgates for him. Either that, or they were chopping onions in the kitchen. How many times have I burst into tears? Uh, <laughs> it's no more than three times, is it? No, why no, no. Yeah. I don't know why you're quite bringing that out. I've never done anything where I've sort of burst into tears <laughs> or got emotional um, um, all in a row. On <laughs> well, they, <laughs> quite seriously, showing emotion, being emotional... <laughs> Sorry? Being emotional, it's, it's not a problem. I, have there been times when... Not, I don't want to intrude on, on your private family life, but when Nicola has said, David, you need to step back, you're getting too passionate, too emotional, and it's starting to flood into everything. We usually go on a holiday at that point. <laughs> Do you sometimes think, you said you haven't, apart from a bit of family therapy, you haven't done the personal therapy thing. Can politics act in that way? Because you get to say what you think. You get to say what you feel. You get to also think before you say what you feel because you have to work out. You have to actually examine your own thoughts in some detail. Or at least you do if you're a, a politician it, it, of any it, can, it, depends what, it depends what kind of politician you are. I think if you're a conviction politician and your politics are coming from somewhere, and I think... I fit into that mould, then, yeah, probably. But there are quite a lot of politicians who aren't conviction. But in fact, you don't quite know where their politics are. Isn't it horrifying that there are such a thing as a non-conviction politician? Where are their views coming from? I don't think it's horrifying. Look, I think that in the end, we as a society elect a bunch of people to vicariously make decisions on our behalf. And sometimes we're actually deliberately electing people and in full knowledge that we're glad that we don't have to make those decisions. And some of those people are technocrats. Some of those people are boring. Some of those people don't know what the hell they're doing. Some of those people have massive, got massive convictions. Some of those people are deep readers and, and you know, and they, they're Marxists or they're, you know, on the right of the political, you know. So it, it's a mixed bag that broadly reflects society. I have to say, when you, when you came up with that list, I suddenly thought, God, I, I'd kill for a few boring technocrats. <laughs> A few boring technocrats in government right now. <laughs> it would be really nice. It would be fabulous. It would be so nice. Bring you know, back the boring technocrats. Mm, um, let's hear it for boring technocrats. <laughs> who are methodical and, you know, oh, we want more Angela Merkels. David was the perfect company to eat with at Roker on London's Charlotte Street. To hear exactly why he became so moist of eye on a number of occasions, do go back and listen to the full episode wherever you get your podcasts.
People do bang on about me being a total snob constantly, you know, going face down in the lark's tongues and the avocado foam. It's not true. I'm just greedy. I love the classics. And so comedian and actor Joe Brand and I tucked into seriously good fish and chips, courtesy of Ken's Fish Bar, not far from where we both live in Herne Hill, South London. It's well known that Joe is a former psychiatric nurse. What I wanted to know was how she made the jump from that to comedy. Excuse me, I'm just going to open the can. It's not bad. Oh, go for it. As Paris Hilton says, only fat people drink Diet Coke, and that's what I'm drinking. Cheers. <laughs> Spot on there, Paris. Anyway, um, I absolutely loved it. I loved the other people that did it. I think psychiatric nurse is a very particular type of person. What was it that made you think, right, but what I really want to do is get up on stage and tell jokes? I think like an amateur therapist would say, yeah. I wanted to make my dad laugh. Um <laughs> How true that is, I do not know. It's something that's occurred to me occasionally. When, uh, what year did you do your first gig? I remember, because I have to say, just for reference, I watched you do your first Friday Night Live. Oh, did um, you? Oh, yeah, God. I remember it very, very well, because we were all hooked on Friday Night Live. We'd never seen anything like it. Late Night, Channel 4, presented by Ben Elton in a sparkly suit. I watched it again. It's online, that first performance. It's on YouTube. And... It's brilliant. What was really striking was that all the materials there, the gags, every single one hit home. Um, and even the the monotone that you've dissed since, saying, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, so I spoke in a monotone, worked. Was was that who you were when you got up and did the first gig? No. The, <laughs> the, reason, the, I, the, the reason I did that was because I didn't know how to deliver a comedy line in a relaxed way. So... I just did that to try and also to try and disguise the fact that I was really nervous. But it was so exciting, you know. I remember because um, I went back and I did the same series. I did the same series again because they asked me back, which was amazing. Um, but one, one performance I was on with the Pogues and they had a fight in the dressing room next to mine before the show started. And also Mark Thomas was on and I heard him doing a fantastic negotiation as I walked past his dressing room. And one of the producers was saying to him, if you take out a wanker, you can have two toffee bollocks. And I always remember that. <laughs> that was a sort of negotiation that goes on. It's exactly It was exactly like that in those days, you know. You had to keep the serious swearing to a minimum brilliant not like today in podcast land you can say whatever the fuck you like hello i'm giles brandreth and with my friend the world famous lexicographer susie dent every week we do a podcast all about words and language and their origin we're all over the place this week all over great britain all over london all over the world we're talking about the origins of place names there's somewhere in bromley called pratt's bottom hard to believe but it's true can I tell you about Charing Cross? Please. Charing goes back to an old English word meaning a turn or a bend, either referring to a bend in the River Thames at this point or the bend in the old Roman road that existed. But the cross refers to the Eleanor Cross erected here and in several other places, actually, by Edward I to commemorate his first wife, which was Eleanor of Castile, and her funeral procession went from cross to cross. So it's got a lovely story of love. Am I right in thinking that people think that the centre of London is Charing Cross? That when you see 
a sign when you're approaching London. It says seven miles to central London. It is seven miles to Charing Cross. Absolutely right. All distances calculated from there. So if you'd like to hear more about the etymology of London, tune in to the best entertainment podcast, Something Rhymes with Purple, which is available on all the podcast providers that you know and love. We're not just saying it's the best entertainment podcast. We won an award. Incredible. <laughs> Brat's bottom. Hard to believe. Everybody loves Raymond, creator and star of Netflix's Somebody Feed Phil. My good friend Phil Rosenthal joined me on a video call from LA. It was a brilliant chat with dogs being fed in the background and then the whole family joining in with dessert. There are a few subjects that are very close to my heart. One is the struggle to obtain good food after hours on tour. You come off stage, it's late, nowhere's open. For me, it's the stuff of nightmares. Another is the important role that craft services provide. These are the wonderful people who cook lunch and supper for the cast and crew in between filming on American productions. Again, bad craft services keeps me awake at night. Thank goodness for my weighted blanket. As it happens, Phil Rosenthal is a saviour in that department. I asked him why, as showrunner on many huge American TV productions, he chose to feed his cast and crew so well on set. That was about the army travels on its stomach. And I had been on shows. I'd even been on a hit show, which will remain nameless. This memo went around. Did you hear this story? This is true. We noticed some of you are coming in in the morning and putting milk on your cereal. The milk is for coffee. The cereal is for snacks. We do not provide breakfast for you. Please do not put milk on your cereal. So if you drank them separately, so if, if you filled your mouth with cereal and then drank some of the milk, that yes. would be fine. But if you... If, Someone would probably catch but if you on put and see what you bowl, were doing. Yes. Good food on set. It they, didn't want it, they didn't want you depending on them for breakfast because God knows where that ends. I heard another story of another producer. The producers on the show... And the writers, they got uh, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, 7-Up, and the below-the-line staff in the same office had to drink and, oh, and uh, Walmart generic brands of the same soda. That's how cheap. And, and we're talking about shows with multi-million dollar budgets. Where they would agree each season a lift of hundreds of thousands of dollars per episode for the stars, but they would quibble over... A hundred bucks a week on nice cola. And I found that you literally engender loyalty by having the food available not be just chips and nuts and crap and candy, but I would even import Ann Sather's cinnamon buns from Chicago. That's a long way to go and for the, a cinnamon the craft bun. Service, the craft service guy would have them heated up so that people were grabbing these beautifully iced, gorgeous, soft rolls in the morning that you could smell from a mile away. And what that does is, if, you're, if you and I hadn't met yet, and we both attacked these buns at the same time, you would turn to me and go, whoa, I've been on shows, I never had this boat. Yes, this is incredible. And right away, we're talking. And we're forming, actually, a family around something nice, which food has always been you, for so me. So people think of the role of the showrunner as a, a checklist of get good scripts, get good writers in the writer's room, maintain quality control, you know, mm -hmm. make sure everything. But it seems to me you, you added a paternal role to that. Everyone does. 
in my position. It's just how paternal, how warm and fuzzy you want to be is up to you. I'd been on shows where the, the paternal role was that of a dictator <laughs> and not very nice. Mussolini. And to be honest, I couldn't wait. Yes, I couldn't wait to leave. But I found that if, if just the choice to be nice, that's a major choice, right? In how you're going to run things. I never ran anything. So how about trying nice? It seemed to work. A case of Phil feeds everybody there. A man after my own heart. Now, speaking of feeding, let's get back to one of my favourite home lunches because it's actually, it's in front of me and it's getting cold. Um, hang on a second. There's umami, uh, it's chewy, but there's also crispness. There has to be crispness. Depth of flavour. Uh, it's brilliant. Yes, it's a bacon sandwich. I'm sorry, I really love a bacon sandwich. Uh, I, I should apologise to non-meat eaters, but I'm, I'm almost sorry about not being sorry. You know how it works. But anyway, if you're really good, I might just reveal my secret to the perfect bacon sandwich later in the episode. I first met the comedian and actor Sarah Pascoe a number of years ago at a literary festival, and I thought it was time we had a proper chat. Ahead of these interviews, I like to do my research, which means that sometimes I get to remind my guests of things even they've forgotten they did. And call me Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes or Morse, I spotted there were some missing years in Sarah's biography, whole swathes of her 20s that she never talks about. So naturally, we needed to get to the bottom of this. Oh, have you spotted that? I used to tour old people's homes with reminiscence theatre. So I did that for a couple of years. It's a wonderful thing. So it was in the southwest. They go and they interview older people in homes. Yeah. And then they improvise and devise based on their stories a play that then take back to those old people's homes and show them their stories acted out with music from That sounds lovely. Oh, it's so lovely. So Jay, there was a story. And it was a couple and they're still married. They're in the home together. They're both in their 80s. And um, their proposal story was that um, he had bought a ring and he knew he was going to propose and he just, um, he just started driving. And so he was driving her to this place where he was going to propose. He'd already asked her dad. But when he was in the car, he just was too excited. Like he, he, could, he could barely drive. He was so nervous. So he actually pulled over and then got like... In, like, down into the footwell of the car and proposed to her on one knee while they both sat in the car just because he couldn't wait a second longer. And it was so sweet. And then, like, they made that the centre of a play. So it's about this couple and it was lots of other people's stories of dating and learning to drive. But the crux of it was that proposal scene. We took it back and showed it to them and they were both asleep throughout it. <laughs> <laughs> Because it had a sherry. So it's obviously appealing that the comedy audience was awake and smiling at You've got it. no idea, um, yeah, the response. Because that's the thing with the people's homes. They knew that we were coming, but you can't ensure that there's any kind of audience. So there was one show that we did. We performed for an hour, but Wimbledon final was on and they wouldn't turn the TV off. So we were in the same room knowing that everyone's looking at something far more interesting. Was that, in, in retrospect, a more, a better kind of apprenticeship for dying on stage yes. than comedy could ever be. So it's, that's it. It was perfect for stand-up, but it wasn't going to get me to the RSC. There's no ladder through, you know, old people's homes where you finally get to the West End. And that's why I realised, oh, I'm a comedian. I'm not an actor. I'm not a very good actor. Did you like that title? There comes a point when you start doing a job, mm. when you have to say it to yourself, like, I have yeah. to say, I am a journalist, yeah. I am a reporter. Well, it depends who you say it to. I still wouldn't say it to a taxi driver. I still wouldn't say it at a dinner party where you know someone's next reaction is going to be a question that you hate or an assumption that you don't like. 
or, or also um, tell me a joke. And, and it's, it's an odd thing because you're just going to disappoint someone. So you either do try or you just say, well, my material's not like that. It's not actually jokes. And then they think, oh, God, you're one of those comedians that aren't even funny. <laughs> Sarah and I enjoyed wonderful vegan food there from by Chloe. See, we cater to all tastes on Out to Lunch and we're jolly happy to do it too. And uh, talking about vegan food, this is the perfect segue, or not as it may be, because for those meat eaters, I did promise my bacon sandwich secrets. So here they are. One, it has to be thick white bread. Ideally, if you can, toast it on only one side. A little smear of butter. I'm not going to judge you on the sauce. I like a little bit of sriracha mixed in with mayo, but some people like tomato sauce, some like brown sauce. That's fine. But here's the real kicker to it. You need a mixture of back bacon and crispy, streaky, the two of them together, if you're going to make the perfect bacon sandwich. And if I sound obsessed with the bacon sandwich, well, maybe I am. It actually features in my book, My Last Supper, One Meal a Lifetime in the Making, about my pursuit of my last meal on earth. So if you still want some more of me, and I can well imagine you do, uh, you can get my book, My Last Supper, from all good booksellers, and maybe a few bad booksellers too. Those of you who've been paying attention, I do hope you have, there will be an exam later, well, you may have spotted a theme. As with Sarah Pascoe there and Joe Brand earlier in this episode, I'm fascinated by the jobs my guests did before they were famous and how those roles fed into what they're doing now. Often, those jobs feel incongruous and surprising, and it seems particularly true of those in comedy. Comedian, science TV show presenter and polymath Dara O'Brien, host of TV's long-running Mock the Week panel show, was no exception. I asked him about his time on Ireland's RTE television network as a children's presenter. Uh, or to a program called Echo Island, yeah. uh, and which you, was you, a kind of a Blue Peter type show. Yeah, and you got to wear dungarees, which is always a good look on a man of our size. Thank you very much. Does, you does much. make you look a little bit like somebody's weird uncle who's about to be done for giddy fiddling. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, look, look, we know what the associations <laughs> of children's presentation are. Thank yeah. you. There's no need to dwell on them. How did you get the gig? Because that's never explained. How did you become a children's TV presenter? Um, I uh, well, firstly, I, I hadn't done actual comedy at that stage. Uh, I started all of the Ireland is sufficiently small that you can try a lot of different things. Uh, so I was basically looking for any gig involving performing media. Uh, like I, I, so I started, doing, I started doing some comedy gigs. I started writing newspaper articles. I had a column in one of the papers. I was basically, I was, I was ducking, bobbing and weaving, ducking. I was trying to find anything at all, any any kind of. I was a freelancer. Was so there a plan? Any, was there? Were you going? What I want to be when no, I grow no. up is uh, no. I just knew I wanted I wanted to do something in communications. Uh, I, I hadn't started doing comedy. So I thought I'll try writing. I'll try performing. I'll try presenting. I'll try try things where I can and um, see what I like. Because I've come from science. I, I, I came. From, I did science for four years, and then I ran a newspaper, which I absolutely adored running a newspaper. That was and your I student even, newspaper. As a student newspaper, yeah. yeah. So, we, so basically we set up this, uh, or professionalised, we certainly said, uh, a student newspaper, which still runs and still acts as a kind we of... We share that experience. For. I was the editor of my student newspaper. Very good. And it's a great, like, it's a lovely thing. You watch a generation of people come through yeah. and it's a it's a brilliant thing. And also that mad, just adore that mad. You send stuff out, you go, this is not going to happen. And then stuff all arrives back in again. And then you you put it into into a shape and then you do an all-nighter to get the whole thing laid out. All of that. Was, so that, that, was the, that was the semi-plan. And then what? A job. I, I, said, do you know what I did? Do you know what I actually got a? I, I got a place on a, on a master's degree course in journalism. Oh, you could have been one of me. Really what? So I thought I was going to write. But I was going to be an editor, actually. Oh my god, it's spicy! Bloody hell! What is the peppercorn sauce? No, the fuck the um, 
Apologies. Are we? What I'm doing? No, fuck is, is fine. Is we like. We, yeah. you know, which bit of your lunches? The mushrooms, the giant mushrooms with the actual chilies on them. Jesus, <laughs> they don't. They don't take any prisoners. Um, You'll have time so, to remember this event by you know in about nine hours. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to have a cider because this is cool. You know, I was bobbing with doing any kind of gig I could get, and then thought, well, unimaginable to try. I've been the funny guy in college, told jokes in, uh, in front of debating societies and, and halls, but the notion of being actually like a professional comedian was so unbelievably mad as a thing. The, um, the, there were some Irish people doing it. It was a really small circuit. And I kind of stepped into that around the same time as a lot of other people who, you know, a little bit after Ed, but around the same couple of years. Um, but there's a whole generation of Irish comics who all started, not some of whom will be as, as famous here as they are in Ireland, but all started at the same summer, summer of 95. They all kind of came through. And that's been quite lovely that we have this generation. We all started at the same time and we've all kind of kept, competing in a very uh, kind of friendly way since then. We've all kind of m- m- tracked our own development with, against each other. That's very nice to be part of a group that came through at the same time. After about three years, I'd done kids TV and I've done comedy and I've done newspaper and I realised comedy is so what I want to do. And it's beginning to edge out the gigs in the other ones and I retired from the other two. Dara ate Argentinian food from Gaucho there, including a gargantuan steak that I imagine he was still working on into the wee hours. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just a brief break from all the out-to-lunching chat to pip my wares, if you'll allow me the time, because now your favourite podcast comes with real physical stuff too. Stuff we've designed to make your kitchen life both more comfortable and more glamorous. Your friends more envious. Or, of course, if you're a generous soul, you can give them away as Christmas gifts too. It's not one, but three bits of tasty merch that are here with me in my own kitchen. Firstly, this deliciously designed travel cup. Ah, that's fantastic for all your slurping needs on the move or at your desk. Now, I've lost count of the number of shirts I've stained in the kitchen, but it's a thing of the past. Since I started wearing this, that's the sound of the out-to-lunch apron in weighty, riveted denim. And in times like these, we all need to be good to ourselves, so why not invest in the light and soft out-to-lunch tea towel? Ah, yes, this is me stroking it. To see the range, head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com. That's outtolunch, all one word, dot backstreetmerch, all one word, dot com. But now, let's go back to the chat. Finally, let's go back to Dolly. I'd read that she had a terrible Uber rating. That's the score drivers give you for how well you behave as a passenger. As we got into the subject, Dolly revealed a lot more about herself than I expected. Here I am asking her whether her rating was still bad. No, no, kicked it up. You kicked it up? Kicked it up, and I realised why it was so bad. It was... I was just keeping them waiting, like everyone in my life. This is why my rating in, in all my relationships is under five stars is because I keep people waiting 
Why do you do that? I know, I know. Do you hate it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I am pathologically early. Are you? Always. But I, I tend to the view that my pathology is equally a path- I think being late is a pathology. There's a reason for it. Mm. And my being early is pathological. The difference between mine and yours is I don't keep anyone waiting. I know. So why, why do you think you're early all the time? Because I bore really easily and I want to get things going. Okay. I just want to get onto it. Why do you think you're late all the time? So, I saw Philippa Perry do a tweet about lateness. That. Philippa Perry being, it's not, to describe her as Grace and Perry's other half is both unfair and totally fair. As she does. (laughs) She's a brilliant, brilliant psychoanalyst. Yeah. And she tweeted saying, the reason why I think a lot of people are late is low self-esteem. You are oh. not going to like this at all. Because I put this in a column and I got such a battering in the comments. She said, I think it's a way that people check that they're still loved. I'm going to see if this I'm important enough that... Oh, no, I totally agree with this. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, because I'll leave. <laughs> I won't indulge it. (laughs) 15 minutes. That's your max. Yeah. And see, I love people being late for me. It doesn't bother me at all. Love it. Why? Because it reinforces your own ability to be late for them. It reinforces that, makes me feel very magnanimous, and I always have a book with me, so I'm very happy. It doesn't bother me at all. It does not bother me. But I do think that's it. I think it's testing. Well, you see, it's the testing thing, because the, the, the view in my head is... Why am I so unimportant to you that you're happy for me to be waiting? Yes. I also think as well it's optimism. It's? Optimism. Oh. And so this is like my <laughs> That's friends. a positive spin. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm true. I think it's my sunny disposition, Jay. That's right. why. I think also I must point out, I was only, how late was I for you? Five minutes. Oh, barely. Good, yeah. Good. Um, I wouldn't count it as late, actually. Okay. Um, my friends have really tried to analyse it because it has driven them mad over the years. And when I lived with girls, they would say to me, they would be like, I'd come in and I'd chat to them and I'd have a coffee and they'd say, oh, what are you doing today? And I'm like, oh, I've got a meeting at nine in Soho. I'm like, right, well, it's, it's, 20, it's 20 past eight now and you're in your PJs having a coffee, do you think? And I was like, no, no, TFL says it's 15 minutes, so I'll leave at quarter to nine. And they're like, yeah, but you need to get to the station and then you need to walk the other side and then there might be loads of issues with the train and I would always say no it will be fine did, so you, I lose, a lot of it did you lose work as a result of lateness no I have to say with work I'm always pretty punctual have you missed deadlines I mi- I'm always a day about a day out are you right on time? Oh, yeah. Every time? Yeah. Now, how it's about, interesting. How about I, books? Oh, I've never missed a deadline yeah. on a book. I've, I've generally been early. Early? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really smug about it as well, which is worse, isn't it? No, you should be smug. I mean, a book, that takes like quite a lot of orchestration to make sure you'll be early for a deadline. I just always make sure that the deadline I get put in the contract is an absolutely realistic one. No, you're right, I'm wrong. Am I? I mean, that's the question. Also, my Sunday Times editors now just give me a fake. They they know I'm always... I'm on the day or or the morning after, so they'll always just push it back. They give me a fake deadline, I think. There, There was one friend that I started giving fake meeting times to. Oh, yeah. 
just so they could build in and they didn't know they were turning up on my time. <laughs> Do you know what's interesting? My, my best mate, she is you, she's early, early to everything. And it drives me nuts because I cook quite a lot. I host quite a lot in my flat. And she's there 20 minutes before. And I hate, I think that is so inconsiderate. I hate it. I hate people turning up early when you invite them Oh, I never turn up to people's houses early. I, I will sit outside Yes, them. good. But she, so she's always early. And we had dinner, a group of friends of us, a group of friends of ours had dinner. And she, something went wrong with the train and she left a bit late. And she was so late, like she was like 20 minutes late and she was so panicked. And when she arrived, she, this is how compassionate she is. She hugged me and she went, oh my God, I cannot believe how stressful your life must be. She said, my heart goes out to you. What a life you live for yourself. She said, this must be so anxiety inducing. Because she said she was sitting on the tube being like, oh my God, the menus are probably there. They might be ordering drinks. How am I going to get there? Am I going to, are they Except annoyed You don't feel all of that, do you? I do, I do. Do you? I do, yeah. But yeah, I don't change how many, it. How many more uh, sessions of CBT have you got? <laughs> My chats with guests always seem to come back to psychology and therapy. Next series, I think we need to dine while lying back on psychiatrist couches, just in case. And we will be back for series five. Yes, five. Can you believe? Early next year, which means that there are heaps and heaps of past episodes to listen to if you haven't done them all. Do search back through seasons one to four. There may be some gems you've missed. And please do tell your friends about us and comment and give us a five-star review. It all ensures that we can make more of these just for you. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producers were Rosie Marotra and Jemima Rathbone. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.